Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director. We've got some really good stuff for you today. We're going to look at the results of a new survey on the state of theology. We're going to explore an ancient heresy known as Arianism. And we're going to show why Arianism remains appealing today, but should nevertheless be rejected. But before that, I want to greet Bishop Barron, the Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, who is joining us from Santa Barbara. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon, good to see you. It's uh, mercifully a little cooler today in Santa Barbara, so our studio is not quite as hot as it was before. What, is, what does cool mean for Santa it's Barbara? It's like in the mid-60s, maybe, this morning, but last couple times we filmed, it's been super hot here. And as I've said, there was no air conditioning in Santa Barbara, so when it gets hot, which is relatively rare, things get really warm inside. You know, we were joking before we started recording here about some of the comments on a recent video you just posted. You were commenting on Pope Francis's new encyclical, and you were just sitting in your living room under uh, these lights that you're actually not a big fan of because they're kind of, I don't know, gaudy. They, they kind of make everything look weird in the room. Anyway, the comments in the video, people said, Bishop... Why, why do you keep dyeing your hair? Your hair looks blonde. And we were joking because in other videos with other different lighting, your hair looks black or your hair looks like dark brown. Um, so so give us the facts, Bishop. Are you dyeing your hair before every episode? I am not. My entire hair care regimen consists of shampoo and water in the shower. <laughs> That's the entire hair care regimen. Uh, it's funny though. It's what it's just the lighting in different settings, you know. So we have kind of bright lights in here now in the studio. If I'm outside, like under just direct sunlight, I look gray, completely white. Uh, other light, it looks kind of reddish. Or so, yeah. Please, everybody, I'm not dyeing my hair. <laughs> I'm not vain about my hair. It's shampoo and water is the entire hair care. Whatever you're seeing is a product of of different lighting. <laughs> All right, so we saved the heaviest theological discussion here yeah. for the Word on Fire show, <laughs> hair care. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go from there to the topic of discussion. And I want to talk with you about this new survey that was just released by Legionnaire Ministries. Legionnaire is a reformed Protestant ministry, but they worked with a prominent social science group to commission this pretty big survey of American adults, which they call the State of Theology. And if you go to the website, thestateoftheology.com, they have a really beautiful visualization of all this data where you can filter through by you know different factors, religious background, religious attendance, frequency, all sorts of stuff, but beautifully graphically displayed. So I encourage listeners to check it out, thestateoftheology.com. And the survey found lots of interesting things. I think they asked uh, the, re the respondents over 20 questions, but one that especially stood out, and after the survey was released, this is what all the media picked up on in their headlines, was that most Christians believed some very disheartening things about Jesus. Um, so let me mention just a couple of them. So uh, what they would do is they would give people a statement and they would ask people, do you strongly agree? Agree, no opinion, disagree, strongly disagree, that sort of thing. So here's the statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, 59% of Americans in general agreed with that. 59% agreed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. But here's what's alarming. 66% of Catholics agreed with that. So more Catholics than the general population agreed with that. And we'll get into why that's problematic. The second one I want to focus on is Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That was the statement. 51%, so about half of Americans agreed with that. But again, 
57% of Catholics agreed with that. So it's crazy to think that 57% of people who identify as Catholic do not think that Jesus is God. Um, what's your initial impressions of that, Bishop? Well, it's almost as despairing as my response to the Pewform study about um, belief in the Eucharist. We discovered that 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. So the source and summit of the Christian life, according to Vatican II, is now really massively either misunderstood or not believed in by the vast majority of Catholics. This one, central doctrine of our faith, the divinity of Jesus. You take away the divinity of Jesus, Christianity devolves immediately into a mildly interesting mythic or moral system that can be dispensed with, you know, like any other uh, system of thought. Um, if this is true, and, you know, I've been on this for a while, and people go after me and think I'm, you know, one-sided or I'm too intellectualistic or something, but I've been saying for a long time, Brandon, that our catechesis and our communication of the faith has been seriously wanting in the years since Vatican II. Again, not blaming Vatican II, mind you, but there was a, uh, there was a near collapse in our uh, catechesis. I think you're seeing in surveys like this the bitter fruit of it. Um, I think you're going to suggest that what's happening is, is the revival of very ancient heretical positions that the church fought long ago and recognized in some ways as the standing and falling point of Christianity. Um, all sorts of church fathers are spinning in their graves at this finding that now a substantial majority of Catholics hold essentially to these um, uh, ancient heretical positions. So it's, yeah, disturbing. Now, I can see the comment, commenters lining up because so many people today are Kantians, as I've said, that when it comes to religion, isn't it all about ethics? Isn't it all about social justice, about care for the poor? And so if you're committed to all those good things, then who cares what you believe? But that's always been repugnant to our tradition. Our great tradition has been massively interested in doctrinal clarity, especially about this central claim regarding Jesus' divinity. So I think, now again, we have to be fair. This is a survey, as careful as, as it is. You know, we have to be attentive to the objectivities here. Is it in fact the case? Having said that, I must say I'm not terribly surprised. It would fit some of my own expectations. So if it's true, it's very concerning for the life of the church. You mentioned that the church fathers would be rolling over in their graves because they combated a lot of these misstatements and misbeliefs about Jesus in the first few centuries of the church. At that time, there was lots of different heresies swirling around that reduced Jesus from God to just a mere creature. One of the more popular ones, and the one I want to spend time discussing here, is known as Arianism. Um, you could say that in the early church, there was kind of two dominant heresies that got massive attention and following. That would be Arianism and Gnosticism. And we covered Gnosticism in depth in a previous episode. I think it was number 222. Uh, but let's talk about Arianism today. So Arianism stems from Arius, who was a third century Egyptian priest and theologian. Tell us a little bit more about Arius. Who was he? What should we know about him? As you say, a priest in Alexandria, which was a major cultural center at the time. So the great origins from Alexandria. Um, 
Arius comes up out of this sort of richly textured intellectual culture. And now to give him full credit, many people in those first centuries are trying to make sense of two great data that the scriptures had given to them. Namely, that in Jesus, we're dealing with humanity and we're dealing with divinity. So we can point to all kinds of places in the New Testament where both of those facts are revealed. So some of the smartest people in the first several centuries tried to think that through and figure it out and articulate the best way to express the way divinity and humanity relate to each other. So to be fair to someone like Arius, he's a, a brilliant priest, preacher. They even say songwriter. He was a singer and songwriter, and he expressed his theological ideas in popular songs so that people would sing them in you know, public places and so on. Um, he was trying to think it through in a distinctive way. The church in time, and at a very decisive moment, namely the Council of Nicaea, said no to Arius. Now, here's one way, Brandon, I would try to situate it. You might say there are three great options that were available. One is to hyperemphasize the divinity of Jesus. You call this monophysitism, monophysitism. Physis means nature, so monophysis means one nature. He's God with kind of a human appearance or a human vesture, let's say. That is a hyper-stress on divinity. On the other side, you might have Nestorianism, which is the view that you've got really two persons in Jesus. There's a there's divine person, and there's this fully constituted human person, and the two of them are in relationship. Well, you say, well, okay, but that makes him sound like a saint, like Francis of Assisi or, or Mother Teresa. She's a human person relating to a divine person, right? So that's a hyper-stress on the humanity. Now, again, to give him his due, Arius, in a way, represents a middle position. Because Arius says, the divinity incarnate in Jesus is not the full divinity of the true God, but rather he's the first of creatures. The, the Father, if you want, the true God, creates first his logos, which is like this very, very, very high spiritual creature. The logos becomes incarnate in a somewhat truncated human nature. So not a complete humanity, not a complete divinity, but the two of them come together to form Jesus. So is he human? Yeah, kind of. Is he divine? Yeah, kind of. It's a little bit of both, right? So you've got monophysitism, he's God. Nestorianism, he's basically just a super saint. Arianism is like, well, you know what, how about take a little bit of both? He's kind of quasi-divine, quasi-human. What I find really interesting, and I learned this from Chesterton and Newman and so many others, is the church really said no to all three of those positions. And that's, if you look from Nicaea through Constantinople all the way to the Council of Chalcedon, that's what you find the church doing. The church saying both and, right? Not one, the other, or a little bit of both. It says, fully divine, fully human. So I put Arius there as kind of a middle position between monophysitism and Nestorianism. Bishop, we're reflecting here in the 21st century, so you know, 1800 years-ish after these third, fourth century heresies, after we've had many centuries of reflection, refinement, development of our theology. So we look back on heresies like Arianism or Gnosticism and think, 
how could anyone have held that? Like, why would that have been appealing given the biblical data, given the reflection of theologians and stuff like that? So maybe help Steelman the case for Arianism because it was really pervasive. Why did so many people find it attractive? Well, and, and, so, and that's what I was trying to do, Brandon, in some ways, was to present Arius as, as richly as possible. That he, It's wrong to see him as like, well, I think I'm going to become a heretic today and, and cause trouble. He was trying to think it through. And as I suggest, he saw his position as kind of a, a nice compromise. Here's something else about it. I think it has a lot in common with the mythic imagination prevalent at the time. So think of um, uh, Achilles or Hercules, these figures that were quasi-divine, quasi-human, like a hybrid of the two. In a way, Arius represents the um, theologization of these mythic ideas. So I think for both those reasons, he was an attractive figure. And indeed, Arianism in his own lifetime and then long after his death, continued to be a very powerful force within the church. Now, what's interesting, and the reason you're bringing it up, is that first formulation of the question in the survey, that's Arianism, right? Is he the highest creature? Is Jesus the first creature? And that Arius would say, yeah, he is. He's the incarnation of this highest creature, namely the Logos. So it was attractive then. It's attractive now, too. But I, I would say what intervened, though, Brandon, for us is that Kantian move. Is I think for a lot of people today, they'd say, oh, you know, getting that language right about how the divine and human relate is kind of a lot of, you know, fussy foo-foo. Uh, what really matters is, you know, social justice. Uh, that would not have been the view in the ancient world. They were extremely interested in getting the language right about who Jesus uh, is. Uh, that's my fear that our time, it's, it's like we don't really care. We're not, we're not that interested in it as long as we're committed to social justice. Yeah, help flesh that out a little more for us. What are the implications of having a faulty Christology? Why does it matter whether you're an Aryan Christian versus an Orthodox Christian? Why? I was like what Paul Tillich said, that um, uh, the, the issue at the Council of Nicaea, which is, is dealing with Arianism, was the uh, Gettysburg of Christianity. In other words, it was the decisive battle. If we had lost that war, and I'm speaking from a northern perspective here, if the Union had lost Gettysburg, they would have lost the war. If we had lost at Nicaea, we would have lost Christianity. As I say, it would have devolved into, you know, one more mildly interesting mythic or, you know, moral system where you'd say, well, here's an interesting teacher and there's another one. And yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And Jesus, sure, he's got neat things to say about, you know, how to live your life spiritually. Well, so what? So what? The claim of Christianity is that God became human, that humans might become God. I'm using the old patristic formula. The Christian difference is that God entered into our human condition so as to save it and elevate it from within. The divinity and humanity, mind you, of Jesus are both essential to salvation. Without the incarnation rightly understood, we won't understand what salvation is about. From salvation come the sacraments, the mass, the Eucharist, everything the church is about. So if we had lost, Tillich is right. Now, Tillich's Protestant, but I mean, he's right about Christianity there. If we had lost that battle, we would have lost the war. Which, by the way, I don't know if you're going to uh, go there with another question, Brandon, but which, by the way, is precisely why every single Sunday at Mass, we fight Arius again. 
because we recite the Nicene Creed, right? That comes up out of the Council of Nicaea and explicitly condemns the Arian position and states the Orthodox position. We think it's so important that every single week at our liturgy, we Catholics get up and say, Arius was wrong. Arius was wrong. Every Sunday, lest we forget. Now, the problem is, most people, even at Catholic Mass, have no real idea of what we're doing when we recite that creed. All right, so the Nicene Creed emerges from the Council of Nicaea, that Gettysburg event in the year 325. That's mm -hmm. when the church really seriously engaged uh, Arianism as the first ecumenical council of the church. Walk us through what Nicaea decided and how it decided it. How did the Council of Nicaea battle against Arianism? Well, it's a very interesting moment in the life of the church. As you say, the year 325. So we're the early 4th century. The, the Arian view is being propagated in very, very early 4th century uh, in Alexandria. Then he's exiled, and as he propagates it elsewhere, there are local synods that, that deal with it. But finally, it was the Emperor Constantine himself who was consolidating his control of the Roman Empire, and he wanted Christianity to help him in unifying the empire. What was bugging Constantine, who wasn't particularly pious, but was, wait a minute, the thing I want to use to unite my empire, they're now fighting with each other. So I got to get these people united. So I'd say God and his providence used Constantine's political machinations. Uh, he calls the Council of Nicaea, brings the bishops together to adjudicate this problem. I think, Brandon, the key issue was what I was hinting at earlier. If you don't say that Jesus is fully human, then we're not saved. So the famous you know, adage, what has not been assumed has not been saved. So if he's not truly human, well, then we're not saved. By the same token, if he's not truly divine, we're not saved, right? Because no philosopher or, or poet or mystic can save us because they're in the same boat we are. They can inform us and delight us or whatever you know, philosophers do. They can't save us, though. We can be saved only by a divine grace. And so salvation hinges upon the simultaneous affirmation of the full divinity and full humanity of the Lord. In light of that, the Nicene Fathers said, Arius just won't do it. Arius doesn't work. And so they come up with that famous term, and we recite it now in English, but in the Greek, it was a neologism. It was not a word that came up out of the Bible. It was not a word common in the philosophical tradition, but it was adapted for that purpose. They talked about the Logos, who becomes incarnate in Jesus, as homo usios, with the Father. Homo means same, usia means substance. So we say now in, uh, in our translation, consubstantial with the Father. When I was growing up in the older translation, we said one in being with the Father, which means the same thing. They're, they're both rendering homo usios. That's the hinge. That's the hinge. So next time when you're at Mass and you're going through that creed, you're thinking, oh, what do these words mean? Uh, he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. What are all those? Arius, you're wrong, 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 right? He's not just a high creature. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Then, begotten not made, homo usios with the Father. 
one in being with the Father. Uh, begetting and making is another, another technical distinction. But all of that is designed to say no, no, no to Arius. The hinge thing is one in being. Uh, and because he's one in being with the Father, he can save us. That's why it matters. All right, I want to swing back to what initially prompted this discussion, which was this survey. And maybe we'll close with this. I'm going to read each of these two statements from the survey again to you. And I'd like to get your response to each one of them, okay? So the first one yep. is, Jesus is the first and greatest created being. Excuse me. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Yeah, you can't say created because, again, we're talking about the logos that becomes incarnate in Jesus is begotten, not made. And that's the distinction. You and I are made. Everything in the universe is made. That means created ex nihilo, right? What is begotten, I'll get a little technical here, comes from another, but perfectly participates in that from which he comes. That's the way St. Athanasius put it. So the Son, the Logos, comes from the Father. That's true. He proceeds from the Father, we say, right? But he doesn't come from the Father the way we do, as creatures infinitely other. He comes utterly participating in the one from whom he comes. He's homoousios, one in being with the Father. Begotten, not made, homoousios with the Father. Mind you, through him all things were made. See, so the Logos who becomes incarnate in Jesus is the power through which you and I and everything else were made. If we say that he's made, then he's a creature like the rest of us and we're not saved. Now, let me make one more little distinction. Is the human nature of Jesus a creature? Yes. In other words, his humanity is a finite created reality, sure. But the Logos took to himself this created nature, joining himself to it hypostatically. That just means in the unity of his person, right? So who is Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity who instantiates two natures, divine and human. So he uses the human nature as an iconic representation of his manner of being. So you could say Jesus' humanity is a creature. Sure, sure. Conditioned by time and space and everything else. But is Jesus a creature? No. Because who is he? He's the second person of the Trinity who is homoousios with the Father. All right. How about this second statement? And again, 57% of Catholics, 51% of Americans in general agree with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Then the heck with him. Then who cares? Who cares? I, I think Sufi mystics are great teachers. And I think Hillel is a great teacher. And I think uh, Khalil Gibran's a great teacher. And who cares? If that's all he is, I know that's what liberal Christianity wants him to be. Because then he's harmless. That's the whole point. He's harmless. I can say, oh, yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And then turn to someone else. Or say, you know what? I've kind of grown beyond all these people. I, I, you know, They're all teachers. Sure, they're great. But I'm kind of beyond them all. If he's only a teacher, the heck with him. Christianity collapses in that measure. But see, that too, Brandon, is Kantianism. So Kant would basically argue that. He's the great teacher of the moral life. He's the exemplar of the moral life. He's the archetype of the person perfectly pleasing to God. That's Kant. But see, that's nonsense. Christianity collapses under the weight of that nonsense. And the church has fought it for that very reason. 
Now, that so many Catholics hold to this shows, and I say it to our shame, as I've said before, we've done a pretty lousy job at catechizing and showing what matters. Let me tell you a quick story here from my pastoral experience many years ago. I was talking to this a good guy, a really good younger man who was teaching in the um, uh, religious education program, right? Teaching young kids. Good guy. God bless him for volunteering and doing that work. But he took me aside after Mass one day and with a kind of, you know, just open spirit said to me, hey, you know, Father, those words that we say every week in the creed, you know, God from God, like consubstantial. And here's what he said to me, do they, do they really mean anything? And he said it not like with a challenge. It was like he was just really sincerely puzzled. And, and so I did with him what I just did with everyone here. I, I took him on a quick tour through Arius, the Council of Nicaea. And I said, yeah, they mean Gettysburg. We get this wrong. We lose the war, you know. My, my point there is here's a good guy who's, who's committed to teaching our young kids. Had no idea why those words matter. That's a problem. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. If you'd like to send a question in to Bishop Barron, you can do it at the website askbishopbarron.com. Record your question on any device. Today we hear from Jose in Hot Springs, California. He's got a question about the Sacrament of Confirmation. Here it is. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Jose, and I am from Desert Hot Springs, California. And my question to you is regarding the Sacrament of Confirmation. If confirmation is supposed to make us fiery defenders of the faith, then why do some Protestants have the same ardor for their faith, or even more, even though they don't have the sacrament? Thank you, Bishop Barron. God bless. Yeah, thanks for that question. Again, I'm reminded of uh, my mentor, Cardinal George, you know, that said the Catholic Church has all the gifts that Christ wants his people to have, including all the sacraments. But it doesn't mean that uh, some non-Catholic Christian churches don't exercise some of the gifts better than we do. So I might notice, you know, a Protestant preacher is, is like out preaching a lot of Catholic priests, even though Catholic priests have the great, you know, virtue of, of ordination. I guess in a similar way that, yes, indeed, confirmation is meant to convey, it does in fact convey, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit of God can't operate outside of those official channels, though that's through his own choice, his usual means of communicating his life to us. But yet the Spirit is not constrained by the sacraments and can operate outside. So you might hear a preacher, think of, uh, of the young John Henry Newman, who you know, is really brought to his Christian faith by a Protestant preacher he heard when he was 15 years old. Well, that wasn't negated by his becoming Catholic. His, his Catholicism expanded and corrected certain things and all that. But yet, I'd say the Holy Spirit was operative in bringing the young John Henry Newman to Christian faith through a Protestant preacher. Um, fair enough. So that can happen, certainly. It doesn't mean, though, that we relativize the sacraments or say, well, then who cares about sacraments? No, the sacraments are because Christ wanted them, not because I want them. <laughs> you know, uh, those, They're the ordinary means by which he wants to communicate his life to us, so we take them with utter seriousness. 
Well, thanks so much for listening and watching this episode of the Word on Fire show about Arianism then and now. A few things before we wrap up. First of all, I hope you have had time to grab your copy of the Word on Fire Bible. I mentioned a couple episodes back that we have a limited quantity. We're kind of expecting them to go pretty quickly, probably before Christmas. And sure enough, they're flying out of the warehouse. So if you haven't got yours yet, now's a good time to do it. If you want to get one for yourself, for Christmas gifts, now's a good time. You can find it at wordonfire.org Bible. On that note, we're also hosting an online summit all about the Bible. It's a free one-week online summit. We're going to be interviewing some of the great biblical scholars and thinkers of today. You can find all of that inside the Word on Fire community. So this is an online community discussion group we've created. It's got tens of thousands of other Word on Fire fans interested in theology and the Bible and philosophy. So sign up for that at wordonfire.org community. And again, that's this Word on Fire Bible Summit coming up here. It'll be from November 16th through November 20th. And then finally, I'd like to give a special shout out and thank you to some of our great patrons, uh, Michael Sinayan from South Bend, Indiana, Linda Henderson from Rye Beach, New Hampshire, Tom Foster from Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Carrie Campbell from the Redlands in California. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, It's hard to express all of our gratitude to you for making this show happen. Um, The setup, the cameras, the lights, the production, all that goes into this only happens because of our patrons. So thank you so much for supporting us. If you'd like to join them, if if you like this show, you want to support it, visit wordonfireshow.com slash patron. Well, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.